Chapter 5 The Excuses of Sinners Condemn God Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? Job 40, 8 Although Job had generally spoken correctly of God, yet in his great anguish and distress under his severe trials, he had said some things that were hasty and abusive. The Lord rebuked him for these things. This rebuke is contained in our text of Job 40, 1-8. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? It is not, however, my object to discuss the original purpose and connection of these words, but rather to consider their present application to the case of sinners. In pursuing this object, I will, Roman numeral 1, show that every excuse for sin condemns God. Roman numeral 2, consider some of these excuses in detail. Roman numeral 3, show that excuses for sin add insult to injury. Roman numeral 1. Every excuse for sin condemns God. This will be apparent if we consider the following. 1. Nothing can be sin for which there is a justifiable excuse. This is entirely self-evident. It therefore needs neither explanation nor proof. 2. If God condemns that for which there is a good excuse, he must be wrong. This is also self-evident. If God condemns that which we have good reason for doing, no intelligence in the universe can justify him. 3. God condemns all sin. He condemns it completely and will not allow the least defense or excuse for it. Therefore, Either there is no excuse for it, or God is wrong. 4. Consequently, every excuse for sin lays blame upon God and practically accuses Him of tyranny. Whoever pleads an excuse for sin, therefore, blames God. Roman numeral 2. We will consider some of these excuses and see whether the principles I have laid down are not just and true. 1. Inability No excuse is more common. 
It is echoed and re-echoed over every Christian land, and it is handed down age after age, never to be forgotten. Without shame, it is proclaimed that people cannot do what God requires of them. Let us examine this and see what it amounts to. It is said that God requires what people cannot do. Does He know that people cannot do it? Most certainly. Therefore, He has no apology for requiring it, and the demand is most unreasonable. Human reason can never justify it. It is a natural impossibility. But again, upon what penalty does God require what people cannot do? The threatened penalty is eternal death. Yes, eternal death, according to the views of those who plead inability as an excuse. God requires me, with the threat of eternal death, to do that which He knows I cannot do. This certainly condemns God in the worst sense. You might just as well directly accuse God of being an infinite tyrant. Moreover, it is not for us to say whether on these conditions we will or will not accuse God of infinite tyranny, for we cannot help it. The law of our reason demands it. Therefore, those who plant themselves upon these grounds accuse God of infinite tyranny. Sinner, it might be that when you promote the excuse of inability, you have not much considered that you are already accusing God of infinite tyranny. And you, Christian, who make this dogma of inability a part of your orthodox creed, may have little noticed its blasphemous bearings against the character of God. However, your failure to notice it does not change the fact. The unrighteous accusation is included in the very doctrine of inability, and it cannot be explained out of it. I have indicated that this accusation is most truly blasphemous against God. Far be it from God to do any such thing. Will God require natural impossibilities and proclaim eternal death upon people for not doing what they have no natural power to do? Never. Yet good people and bad people agree together to accuse God of doing this very thing, and of not just doing so once or twice, but consistently, through all ages, with all people, from the beginning to the end of time. This is horrible. Nothing in all the government of God ever so insulted and abused him. Nothing was ever more blasphemous and false. God says that his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5.3 But you, by this excuse of inability, proclaim that God's words are false. You declare that his commands are not only grievous, but are even naturally impossible. Listen, what does the Lord Jesus say? My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 11.30 Do you deny this? Do you rise up in the very face of his words and say, Lord, your yoke is so difficult that no one can possibly endure it? 
your burden is so heavy that no one can ever bear it. Is not this contradicting and blaspheming him who cannot lie? Titus 1.2 However, you take the ground that no one can obey the law of God. As the Presbyterian Confession of Faith says, no man is able, either by himself or by any grace received in this life, perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Observe that this affirms not only that no one is naturally able to keep God's commands, but also that no one is able to do it by any grace received in this life thus making this declaration a libel on the gospel, as well as a clear misrepresentation of the law, of its author, and of man's relations to both. It is only moderate language to call this assertion from the confession of faith a libel. If there is a lie either in hell or out of hell, this is a lie, or God is an infinite tyrant. If reason is allowed to speak at all, it is impossible for it to say less or otherwise than this. And has not God established the reason of man for the very purpose of taking notice of the righteousness of all his ways? Let God be true, even though every man be proved a liar. Romans 3.4 In the present case, the remarkable fact that no one can appease his own conscience and convince himself that he is truly unable to keep the law shows that man lies, not God. 2. Lack of time Suppose I tell one of my sons, Go and do this duty, or the punishment will be that you will be whipped to death. He replies, Father, I cannot possibly do it for I do not have time. I must be doing that other business that you told me to do. Besides, if I had nothing else to do, I could not possibly do this new business in the time you allow. Now, if this statement is the truth, and I knew it when I gave him the command, then I am a tyrant. There is no evading this charge. My conduct toward my son would be downright tyranny. Therefore, if God really requires of you what you do not have time to do, he is infinitely to blame, for he surely knows how little time you have, and it is undeniable that he enforces his demands with most terrible penalties. What? Is God so unconcerned about justice, so thoughtless of the well-being of his creatures, that he can amuse himself with red-hot thunderbolts and hurl them, despite justice and goodness, among his unfortunate creatures? Never, never. This is not true. It is only the false assumption that the sinner makes when he pleads as his excuse that he does not have time to do what God demands of him. Let me ask you, sinner, how much time will it take you to do the first great duty that God requires, that is, to give him your heart? How long will this take? How long do you need to make up your mind to serve and love God? 
Do you not know that this, when done, will be done in one moment of time? How long do you need to take to persuade yourself to do it? Your meaning, then, may be this. Lord, it takes me so long to make up my mind to serve you that it seems as if I will never have enough time for this. Even my entire life seems almost too short for me to bring my mind to do this unwelcome decision. Is this your meaning, sinner? Let us look at all sides of the subject. Suppose I say to my son, Do this now, son. And he replies, I can't, father, for I must do that other thing you told me to do. Does God do this with us? No. God only requires the duty of each moment in its time. That is all. He only asks us to use faithfully all the power He has given us, nothing more. He only requires that we do the best we can. When He specifies the amount of love that will please Him, He does not say, You shall love the Lord your God with the powers of an angel, with the burning heart of a seraph. No, but only with all thy heart. Matthew 22:37. This is all. It is an infinitely ridiculous plea of the sinner that he cannot do as well as he can, that he cannot love God with all his own heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will do the best that you are able to do, God says to the sinner. The sinner responds, I am not able to do that. Oh, what foolish nonsense! You complain that God is unreasonable. The truth is that God is the most reasonable of all beings. He only asks that we would use each moment for Him, in work or in rest, whichever is most for His glory. He only requires that we would do all we can to serve Him with the time, talents, and strength that He has given to us. Some mother says, How can I be religious? I have to take care of all my children. Indeed. Can't you get time to serve God? What does God require of you? Does He demand that you must forsake and neglect your children? No, indeed. He asks you to take care of your children, to take good care of them, and to do it all for God. He says to you, Those are my children, and He puts them into your hands, saying, Take care of them for me, and I will give you your wages. Will it require more time to take care of your children for God than to take care of them for yourself? You now say, I cannot be religious, for I must be up in the morning and get my breakfast. How much longer will it take you to get your breakfast ready to please God than to do the same to please yourself? How much more time must you have to do your duties for God than to do them selfishly? What then do you mean by this excuse? The fact is that all these excuses show that the person making such excuses is delusional, not insane, but delusional. What does God require that is so great 
that you would be unable to do it for lack of time. Only this, that you would do it all for God. People who make this excuse seem to have completely overlooked the real nature of Christianity and of the requirements that God places upon them. So it is with the excuse of inability. The sinner says, I am unable. Unable to do what? Just what you can do, for God never requires anything beyond this. Unless, therefore, you suppose that God requires more of you than you can do, your excuse is false and even ridiculous. If, on the other hand, you do not suppose this then, if your excuse were true, it would show God to be unjust. As I mentioned, when people use this excuse of having no time to be Christ-like, they completely overlook or misrepresent the true idea of Christianity. The farmer pleads, I can't be holy, I can't serve God, for I must sow my wheat. Well, sow your wheat, but do it for the Lord. But you say you have so much to do, then do it all for the Lord. Another person says that he cannot follow Christ because he must study his lesson. Well, study, but do it for the Lord, and this will be pleasing to God. The person who would neglect to sow his wheat or neglect to study because he wants to follow Jesus is crazy. He distorts the plainest things in the worst way. If you are to be holy, you must be industrious. The farmer must sow his wheat, and the student must study his lesson. An idle person can no more be Christian than the devil can be. This idea that people cannot be Christian because they have some business to do is complete nonsense. It completely overlooks the great truth that God never forbids us from doing the appropriate business of life, but only requires that we should do it all for Him. If God did require us to serve Him in such a way that would compel us to neglect the practical duties of life, it would be truly a difficult situation. However, the whole truth is that He requires us to do precisely these duties, to do them all honestly and faithfully for Him, and to do them in the best possible manner. Let the farmer take care of his farm and see that he does it well, and above all, do it for God. It is God's farm and the heart of every farmer is God's heart. Therefore, let the farm be tilled for God, and the heart be devoted to Him alone. 3. A Sinful Nature What is this sinful nature that some people blame for their sin? Do you mean by it that every ability and even the very essence of your character were poisoned and made sinful in Adam, and came down in this polluted state by inheritance to you? Do you mean that you were so born in sin that the substance of your being is completely saturated with it, and that all the powers of your being are themselves sin? Do you believe this? 
I admit that if this were true, it would be a difficult case, very difficult indeed. Until the laws of my reason are changed, it would compel me to speak out openly and say, Lord, this is a difficult case, that you would make my nature itself a sinner and then charge the guilt of its sin upon me. I would not be able to help saying this. The deep echoings of my inner being would proclaim it without ceasing, and the breaking of ten thousand thunderbolts over my head would not deter me from thinking and saying so. The reason that God has given me would forever affirm it. But the belief is an utter absurdity. For what is sin? God answers, Sin is the transgression of the law. 1 John 3, 4 You now contend that your nature is itself a breach of the law of God, and that it has always been a breach of God's law, from Adam to the day of your birth. You say that the stream of this sin came down in the veins and blood of your race. And who made it so? Who created the veins and blood of man? From whose hand sprang this physical and mental constitution? Was man his own creator? Did sin do a part of the work in creating your physical and your mental constitution? Do you believe any such thing? No. You credit your nature and its original capabilities to God, and therefore you accuse him of being guilty for being the author of your sinful nature. What a strange thing this is. If a man is at fault for his sinful nature, why not condemn man for having blue or brown eyes? The fact is that sin can never consist in having a nature, nor in what nature is, but only and alone in the bad use that we make of our nature. This is all. Our Maker will never find fault with us for what He Himself has done or made. He will not condemn us if we will only make a proper use of our powers, of our intellect, our sensibility, and our will. He never holds us responsible for our original nature. If you will observe, you will find that God has given no law specifying what sort of nature and inherent powers we should have. He has given no law on these points, the transgression of which, if given, might somewhat resemble the definition of sin. But now, since there is no law about nature, nature cannot be a transgression. Let me say here that if God were to make a law specifying what nature or constitution a person must have, it could not possibly be anything other than unjust and absurd because man's nature is not a proper subject for legislation, precept, and penalty since it lies entirely outside the bounds of voluntary action, or of any action of man at all. Yet thousands of people have held the belief that sin consists largely in having a sinful nature. Yes, 
Through long ages of past history, serious theologians have sincerely taught this dreadful dogma. It has resounded from pulpits and has been stereotyped for the press, and people have never seemed to grow tired of glorifying this dogma as the surest test of sound orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. There was never a more infamous libel on God. It would be difficult to name another belief that more sharply outrages common sense. It is nonsense, absurd and utter nonsense. It is even worse than nonsense. Think what harm it has caused. Think how it has maligned the law, the government, and the character of God. Think how it has filled the mouths of sinners with excuses from the day of its birth to this hour. I do not mean to imply that the people who have held this belief have knowingly insulted God with it. I do not imply that they have been aware of the impious and even blasphemous aspect of this belief upon God. I am happy to think that some, at least, have done all this harm in ignorance. However, the fault and the wrong have not been any less because of the honest ignorance in which they were done. 4. Sinners, in self-excuse, say they are willing to be Christians. They are willing, they say, to be sanctified. Oh, yes, they are very willing. But there is some great difficulty lying further back, or something else. They might not know just where it is, but it is somewhere and it will not let them become Christians. The fact is that if we are really willing, there is nothing more that we can do. To be willing is all we have to do morally in the case, and it is all we can do. However, the excuse as it is in the sinner's mouth maintains that God requires of us what is naturally impossible. It assumes that God requires of us something more than to be willing, and this, of course, is an impossibility for us. If I will to move my muscles and no motion follows, I have done all I can do. There is a difficulty beyond my reach, and I am not to blame for it. In the same way, if I were to will to serve God, and absolutely no effect would follow, I have done my utmost, and God can never demand anything more. In fact, to will is the very thing that God requires. If there be first a willing mind, it is accepted. 2 Corinthians 8.12 Tell me, parent, if you had told your child to do anything, and you saw him exerting himself to the utmost, would you ask anything more? If you would see a parent demanding and enforcing of a child more than he could possibly do, no matter how willing the child was, would you not denounce that parent as a tyrant? Certainly you would. This excuse is completely false, for no sinner is willing to be any better than he actually is. If the will is right, all is right, 
and generally the state of the will is the measure of one's moral character. Therefore, those people who plead that they are willing to be Christians while still remaining in their sins talk mere nonsense. 5. Sinners say they are waiting God's time. A lady in Philadelphia had been in great distress of mind for many years. On calling to see her, I asked, What does God require of you? What is your situation? Oh, she said, God waited on me a long time before I began to seek Him at all, and now I must wait for Him as long as He did for me. That is what my minister tells me. You see, therefore, that I am waiting in great distress for God to be ready to receive me. Now, what is the real meaning of this? It comes to this, that God urges me to duty, but is not ready for me to do it. He tells me to come to the gospel feast, and I am ready, but he is not ready to let me in. Does this not place all the blame upon God? Could anything do so more completely than this does? The sinner says, I am ready and willing and waiting, but God is not yet ready for me to stop sinning. His hour has not yet come. When I first began to preach, I found this idea almost universal. Often after urging people to duty, I have been confronted with people saying, What? You place all the blame upon the sinner? Yes, indeed I do, would be my reply. An old lady once met me after preaching and exclaimed, What? You direct people to get religion themselves? You tell them to repent themselves? You don't mean this, do you? Indeed I do, I said. She had been teaching for many years that the sinner's main duty is to wait for God's good time. 6. Sinners make the excuse that their circumstances are very unusual. I know my duty well enough, but my circumstances are so unusual. Does not God understand your circumstances? Has not his providence been involved in making them what they are? If so, then you are throwing blame upon God. You say, O oh Lord, you are a hard master, for you have never made any allowance for my circumstances. But what, sinner, do you really mean in making this excuse? Do you mean that your circumstances are so unusual that God should excuse you from becoming a follower of Jesus, at least for now? If you do not mean as much as this, why do you make your circumstances your excuse at all? If you do mean this, then you are just as much mistaken as you can be, for God requires you despite your circumstances, to abandon your sin. If your circumstances are now so unusual that you cannot serve God in them, you must abandon them or lose your soul. If they do allow you to serve God in them, then do so at once. But you say, I cannot get out of my circumstances. 
I reply that you can. You can get out of the wickedness of them, for it is necessary in order to serve God. You can change them, and if not, you can repent and serve God in them. 7. The sinner's next excuse is that his temperament is unusual. Oh, he says, I am very nervous, or my temperament is very sluggish. I seem to have no discernment. Now what does God require? Does he require of you another or a different sense from your own? Or does he require only that you would use what you have according to the law of love? However, this is the way it is with many people who make excuses. One person claims to have too little excitement and another too much, so neither person can possibly repent and serve God. A woman came to me and pleaded that she was naturally too excitable and dared not trust herself and therefore could not repent. Another person claims to have the opposite trouble of being too unemotional and hardly ever shedding a tear and therefore could make nothing out of Christianity, even if he would try. But does God require you to shed more tears than you are naturally able to shed? Or does he only require that you should serve him? Certainly, this is all he requires. Serve him with the very powers he has given you. If your nerves are excitable, come and lay those quivering emotions into the hands of God. Pour out that emotion into the heart of God. This is all that he requires. I know how to sympathize with that woman for I know much about an earnest affection. But does God require feeling and excitement, or only a complete consecration of all our powers to himself? 8. Another person gives the excuse that his health is so poor that he cannot go to Christian meetings, and therefore cannot be godly. Well, what does God require? Does he require that you should go to all the meetings day or night, whether you have the necessary health for it or not? Definitely not. If you are not able to go to the meetings, you can still give God your heart. If you cannot go in bad weather, be assured that God is infinitely the most reasonable being who ever existed. He makes all due allowance for every circumstance. Does he not know all your weakness? Indeed he does. Do you suppose that he visits you when you are sick and denounces you for not being able to go to a meeting or for not attempting to do so when unable and for not doing everything when you are sick that you can do when healthy? No, not he. But he visits you as a father. He comes to pour out the deepest compassions of his heart in kindness and in love. And why would you not respond to his loving kindness? He comes to you and says, Give me your heart, my child. Now you reply, I have no heart. Then he has nothing to ask of you. He knows you have a heart, 
and he knows, too, that he has done enough to draw your heart in love and gratitude to himself. He asks, What can you find in all my interactions with you that is grievous? If nothing, why do you bring forward excuses for sin that accuse and condemn God? 9. Another excuse is like this. My heart is so hard that I cannot feel anything. This is very common, both among professors and non-professors of Christianity. In reality, it is only another form of the excuse of inability. In fact, all the sinner's excuses amount only to this. I am unable. I cannot do what God requires. If the excuse of a hard heart is any excuse at all, it must be on the basis of actual inability. But what is hardness of heart? Do you mean that you have such great lack of emotion that you do not have any feelings or that you have no power to will or to act right? On this point, it should be considered that the emotions are completely involuntary. They go and come according to circumstances, and therefore are never required by the law of God, and are not, properly speaking, either Christianity itself or any part of it. Therefore, if by a hard heart you mean you have little emotion or feeling, this is not relevant to the subject. God asks you to yield your will and consecrate your desires to Him, and He asks this whether you have any feeling or not. Real hardness of heart, in the Bible sense of the phrase, means stubbornness of will. In a child, a hard heart means a will set in fixed stubbornness against following his parents' instructions and commands. The child may have either much or little emotion in connection with this. His emotions may be intense and thoroughly excited, or they may be dormant, yet the stubborn will may be there in either case. The hardness of heart of which God complains in the sinner is precisely of this type. The sinner clings to his self-indulgence and will not relinquish it and then complains of hardness of heart. What would you think of a child who, when required to do a most reasonable thing, would give the same kind of excuse? My heart is so hard, I can't do it. My will is so set to have my own way that I cannot possibly yield to my father's authority. This complaint is extremely common. Many sinners make this excuse who have been often warned, have often been prayed with and wept over, and who have often felt the conviction of sin. Does someone who makes this excuse really mean that he finds his will so stubborn that he cannot make up his mind to surrender to God's claims? Does he mean this, and does he really intend to announce his own disgrace? 
Suppose you go to the demons in hell and proclaim to them the gospel of God and the need to surrender to him. And they would reply, Oh, my heart is so hard, I can't. What would they mean by this? They would mean that they are so obstinate and their wills are so set in sin that they cannot for a moment consider the thought of repentance. This would be their meaning. And if the sinner tells the truth about himself and uses language correctly, he must mean the same. Oh, how he adds insult to injury by this declaration. Suppose a child would say, I cannot find it in my heart to love my father and my mother. My heart is so hard toward them that I can never love them. I can feel pleasure only in talking back to them and rejecting their authority. What an excuse this is! Does not this heap insult upon wrong? Suppose a murderer were arraigned before the court, and before he was sentenced, he was permitted to speak and tell any reason as to why sentence should not be passed. Suppose he would stand up and say, May it please the court, my heart for a long time has been as hard as a millstone. I have murdered so many men, and I have been doing this for so long that I can kill a man without the least misgiving of conscience. Indeed, I have such an unquenchable thirst for blood that I cannot help murdering whenever I have a good opportunity. In fact, my heart is so hard that I find I like this kind of work as much as any other. Well, how long will the court listen to such a plea? The judge would exclaim, Stop! Stop right there, you wretched villain! We will hear no more of your plea. Sheriff, bring in a gallows and hang the man within these very walls of justice for I will not leave the bench until I see him dead. He will murder us all here in this house if he can. Now, what will we think of the sinner who says the same thing? O oh God, he says, my heart is so hard that I can never love you. I hate you so sincerely that I will never decide to surrender my heart to you in love and willing submission. Sinners, many of you have made the same plea. My heart is so hard, I can't repent, I can't love and serve God. Go write it down. Proclaim it to the universe. Make your boast of being so hard-hearted that no pleading from God can ever move you. I think that if you were to make such an excuse, you would not be half through before the whole universe would chase you from their presence and from the face of these heavens until you would cry out for some rocks or mountains to hide you from their scathing rebukes their voice of indignation would rise up and ring along the arch of heaven like the roar of ten thousand tornadoes and would overwhelm you with unutterable confusion and shame. What? Do you insult and revile the Lord? Do you condemn that very God who has watched over you in unspeakable love, 
who has fanned you with his gentle breezes during your sickness and who has fed you at his own table, even as you would not thank him or even notice his providing hand? Then, when the sympathy of your Christian friends have caused them to plead with you to repent, and when they have made you a special subject of their prayers, when angels have wept over you, and unseen spirits have lifted their warning voices in your pathway to hell, you turn up your face of brass toward the Lord and tell him that your heart is so hard that you cannot repent and that you do not care whether you ever do or not? You seize a spear and plunge it into the heart of the crucified one and then cry out, I cannot be sorry. My heart is hard as a stone. I don't care and I will not repent. What a wretch you are, sinner, if this is your plea. But what does your plea amount to? Only this, that your heart is fully set to do evil. The sacred writer has revealed your case more clearly. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 You stand before the Lord in this foolish, blasphemous attitude, fully set in your heart to do evil. 10. Another form of the same plea is, My heart is so wicked that I can't. Some people do not hesitate to declare this wickedness of heart. What do they mean by it? Do they mean that they are so hardened in sin and so desperately wicked that they will not bow to God? This is the only proper sense of their language, and this is the precise truth. Since you bring forward this as your excuse, sinner, your intent must be to accuse God of this wickedness of heart. You might be trying to do this covertly, but you are really implying that God is involved in creating that wicked heart. That is it, and this is all of it. You would feel no interest in the excuse, and you would never say it, except for this unspoken implication that God is at fault for your wicked heart. This is merely the plea of inability, coupled with its twin sister, original sin, coming down in the created blood and veins of the human race under accusation of the Creator's responsibility. 11. Another similar excuse is, My heart is so deceitful. Suppose someone would make this excuse for deceiving his neighbor. I can't help cheating you. I can't help lying to you and hurting you. My heart is so deceitful. Would anyone in his right mind ever suppose that this could be an apology or excuse for doing wrong? Never. Of course, unless the sinner intends in this excuse to set forth his own guilt and condemn himself. He must intend it 
as some sort of justification. If so, he is really trying to cast the blame upon God. This is usually the intention. He does not sincerely intend to confess his own sin, but he is trying to place the guilt of his deceitful heart upon God. 12. Another person uses the excuse, I have tried to become a Christian. I have done all I can do. I have tried often, earnestly, and for a long time. You have tried, you say, to be a Christian? What is being a Christian? It is giving your heart to God. What is giving your heart to God? It is devoting your voluntary powers to Him. It is ceasing to live for yourself and instead living for God. This is being a Christian, the state you profess to have been trying to attain. No excuse is more common than this. What is legitimately implied by saying that you are trying to be a Christian? A willingness to do your duty is always implied, that the heart, the will, is right already. And the trying refers only to the outward efforts. For there is no sense whatsoever in a person saying that he is trying to do what he has no intention or will to do. The very statement implies that his will is not only in favor of, but is thoroughly committed to and is really in earnest of attaining the end chosen. Consequently, they must mean that if someone tries to be a Christian, his heart is obedient to God and his trying must refer to his outward action. These things, then, are so connected with the will that they follow by a law of necessity unless the connection is broken. When this takes place, no sin accompanies our failure to secure the outward act. God does not hold us responsible. Therefore, the sinner should mean by this excuse, I have obeyed God for a long time. I have had a right heart, and I have sincerely tried to achieve such external action as agrees with Christian character. If this is true, you have done your duty. But do you intend to affirm all this? No. Then what do you mean? Suppose I would say to my son, Do this. Do it, my son. Why have you not done it? Oh, he says, Father, I have tried. However, he does not mean that he has ever intended to do it or that he has ever made up his mind to obey me. He only means, I have been willing to try. I made up my mind to try to be willing. I have brought myself to be willing to try to will to do it. That is all he means by that. You say, I have tried to get true religion. What is true religion that you could not get it? How did you fail? You have probably been trying in this way. God has said, Give me your heart, 
and you turned around and asked God to do it himself, or maybe you simply waited for him to do it. He commanded you to repent, and you have tried to get him to repent for you. He said, believe the gospel, and you have only been thinking of trying to get him to believe for you. It is no wonder that you have tried for a long time in vain. How could it be otherwise? You have not been trying to do what God commanded you to do, but you have been trying to get God to change his system of moral government and put himself in your place to do himself the duty he requires from you. What a miserable corruption this is. Now, as to this whole excuse of having tried to be a Christian, what is the use of it? You will easily see its use when you properly realize that it is completely false when you understood as you intended and that it is an unfair accusation against the character of God. You say, Lord, I know I can't. I have tried all I can and I know I cannot become a Christian. I am willing to get true religion, but I do not seem able to do so. Who then is to blame? Not yourself, according to your statement of your situation. Where then is the blame? Let me ask what would be said in the distant regions of the universe if you would say there that you have tried with all your heart to love and serve God, but you can't. They would never believe such an accusation against their own infinite Father. Of course, they will pronounce your doom as you deserve. 13. Another excuse is that it will do no good to try. What do you mean by this? Do you mean that God will not pay well for service done for him? Do you mean that he will not forgive you if you repent? Do you think, as some do, that you have sinned away your day of grace? Well, suppose you have. Is this any reason why you should continue in sin? Do you not believe that God is good and that he will forgive you if the good of the universe permits? Most certainly. Is the impossibility of his forgiving you then any reason why you should continue in sin forever and forever be angry against a God of infinite goodness? You believe him to be compassionate and forgiving. Should you not then say that you will at least stop sinning against such a God? You can say with the man who dreamed that he was just then going to hell as he was parting from his brother, who was going then to heaven as his dream had it, I am going down to hell, but I want you to tell God from me that I am greatly obliged to him for ten thousand mercies that I never deserved. He has never done me the least injustice. Give him my thanks for all the unmerited good he has done to me. At this point he awoke and found himself bathed in tears of repentance and gratitude to his Father in heaven.
If people would only act as reasonably as that man dreamed, it would be noble and right. If, when they think that they have sinned away the day of grace, they would say, I know God is good. I will at least send him my thanks. He has done me no injustice. If they would take this course, they might at least have the satisfaction of feeling that it is a reasonable and a proper one in their circumstances. Sinner, will you do this? 14. Another person gives the excuse, I have offered to give my heart to Christ, but he won't receive me. I have no evidence that he receives me or ever will. In the last inquiry meeting, a young woman told me that she had offered to give her heart to the Lord, but he would not receive her. This was accusing Jesus directly of lying, for he has said, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 You say, I came and offered myself, and he would not receive me. Jesus Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man, not if some certain people or some favored person, but if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Revelation 3.20 Yet, when you offered him your heart, did he turn you away? Did he say, Away, sinner, go away? No, sinner. He never did that. Never. He had said that he never would do it. His own words are, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said, He that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. Matthew 7, 8. But you say, I have sought him, and I did not find him. Do you mean to insinuate that Jesus Christ is a liar? Have you accused him to his very face? Do you make your solemn affirmation, Lord, I did seek you, I knocked at your gate, but in vain? Do you intend to bring this excuse of yours as a solemn charge of falsehood against Jesus Christ and against God? This will be a serious business with you before it is done with. 15. Someone else says, There is no salvation for me. Do you mean that Christ has made no atonement for you? The Bible says he has tasted death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9. It is declared that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. And do you now claim that there is no salvation provided and possible for you? Are you mourning all the way down to hell because you cannot possibly have salvation?
when the cup of salvation is placed to your lips, do you cast it away, saying, That cannot be for me? Do you know this? Can you prove it even against the Word of God and the Son of God Himself? Speak up, then. If there is such a sinner on this earth, speak out if you have such an accusation against God and if you can prove it to be true. Is there no hope? None at all? The difficulty is not that there is no salvation provided for and offered to you, but that there is no heart for it. Wherefore is there a price put into the hands of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart for it? Proverbs 17.16 16. Maybe you use the excuse, I cannot change my own heart. You cannot? Suppose Adam had made this excuse when God called him to repent after his first sin. Make yourself a new heart and a right spirit, the Lord said to him. I cannot change my own heart myself, replied Adam. Indeed, responds his maker. How long has it been since you changed your heart yourself? You changed it a few hours ago from holiness to sin. And will you tell your Creator that you can't change it from sin to holiness? The sinner should consider that the change of heart is a voluntary thing. You must do it for yourself or it is never done. Is it true that God changes the heart? but God influences the sinner to change, and then the sinner submits his heart to God? The change is the sinner's own voluntary act. 17. You say that you cannot change your heart without more conviction. Do you mean by this that you do not have enough knowledge of your duty and your sin? You cannot say this. You do know your sin and your duty. You know you should consecrate yourself to God. What then do you mean? Can't you do that which you know you should do? There is the old lie, that shameless refuge of lies, that same foul doctrine of inability. What is implied in this new form of it? It is implied that God is not willing to convict you enough to make it possible for you to repent. There is a work and a responsibility for God, and He will not do His work. He will not bear His responsibility. Sadly, therefore, you have no alternative but to go down to hell, and this is all because God will not do His part toward your salvation. Do you really believe that, sinner? 18. You might give the excuse that you must first have more of the Spirit. Yet, you resist the Spirit every day. God offers you His Spirit. Even more, God bestows His Spirit, but you resist it. 
What then do you mean when you pretend to want more of the Spirit's influence? The truth is that you do not want it. You only want to make it appear that God does not do His part to help you to repent, and that since you cannot repent without His help, therefore the blame of your lack of repentance rests on God. This is only another refuge of lies, another form of the old slander upon God that He has made you unable and will not help you out of your inability. 19. The sinner also makes an excuse by saying, God must change my heart. This is true in a sense, but in the sense in which God requires you to do it. He cannot do it himself. God is said to change the heart only in the sense of persuading you to do it. In a person's change of politics, someone might say, such a man changed my heart. He brought me over to his side. This, however, by no means implies that you did not change your own mind. The plain meaning is that he persuaded you and you yielded. This excuse made by the sinner, though, implies that there is something more for God to do before the sinner can become a follower of Christ. I have heard many professing Christians take this very ground. Yes, thousands of Christian ministers, too, have said to the sinner, Wait for God. He will change your heart in his own good time. You can't do it yourself. All that you can do is to put yourself in the way for the Lord to change your heart. When the time comes, he will give you a new heart, maybe while you are asleep and in a state of unconsciousness. God acts in this manner as a sovereign, and he does his own work in his own way. This is what they teach, filling the mouth of the sinner with excuses and making his heart like a stone against the real claims of God upon his conscience. 20. Some sinners give the excuse, I could not live a Christian life if I were to become a Christian. It is unreasonable for me to expect to succeed where I see so many fail. I remember the case of a man who said, It is of no use for me to repent and be a Christian, for it is completely irrational for me to expect to do better than others have done before me. Sinners who make this excuse come forward very timidly and tell God, I am very humble. You see, Lord, that I have a very low opinion of myself. I am so zealous of your honor and so afraid that I will bring disgrace upon your cause that it does not seem at all best for me to think of becoming a Christian. I have such a fear of dishonoring your name. Yes, and what then? Therefore, I will continue to sin and trample the blessed gospel under my feet. I will persecute you, my God, and make war on your cause. For it is better by far not to profess to follow Jesus than to profess and then disgrace my profession. What foolish logic! 
This is a fair example of the absurdity of the sinner's excuses. This excuse assumes that there is not enough grace provided and offered to sustain the soul in a Christian life. The doctrine is that it is unreasonable to expect that we can, by any grace received in this life, perfectly obey the law of God, that God does not provide enough grace and help. This is actually taught by some people as biblical. Away with such teaching to the lowest pit from where it came. What? Is God so weak that he cannot hold up the soul that casts itself on him? Is he so uncharitable in bestowing his gracious aid that it must always be expected to fall short of meeting the needs of his dependent and depending child? This is what you seem to think. You seem to think that it is very difficult to persuade the Lord to give you a particle of grace that you cannot get grace enough to live a Christian life with honor. This is accusing God of withholding sufficient grace. But what do the word of God and the oath of the Lord say? We read that God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. You say, however, if I would flee and lay hold of this hope, I would fail for lack of grace. I could have no consolation in resting upon the word of him who cannot lie. The oath of the immutable God can never be enough for me. You deny the word of God and make up a miserably poor excuse for your lack of repentance. 21. Another excuse is that this is a very obscure and mysterious subject. You claim that you cannot understand this matter of faith and regeneration. Sinner, did you ever go to the Lord with this objection and say, Lord, you have required me to do things that I cannot understand? You know that you can understand well enough that you are a sinner, that Christ died for you, and that you must believe on him and turn away from and leave your sins by repentance. All this is so plain that the wayfaring men, though fools, need not err therein. Isaiah 35, 8. Your excuse, therefore, is as false as it is corrupt. It is nothing better than a false accusation against God. 22. Some people say, I can't believe. Do you mean that you cannot believe a God of infinite truth in the same way that you can believe a fellow man? Would you imply that God asks you to believe things that are really absurd, things so revolting to reason that you cannot accept them on any testimony that even God himself can declare? 
Do you really expect to present this case against God? Do you even believe it yourself? However, you insist that you cannot grasp these things. You know that these things are true, but you cannot comprehend that the Bible is true, that God does offer to forgive, and that salvation is actually provided and placed within your reach. What help can there be for a case like yours? What can make these truths more certain? As you admit, you do not need more evidence. Why not, then, act upon the known truth? What more can you ask? Do you ever take your case before God and say, O Lord, you say that Christ died for me, but I cannot believe that it is so? And therefore, Lord, I cannot possibly embrace him as my Savior? Would this be a rational excuse? Yet you also give the excuse that you cannot repent. You cannot be sorry that you have offended God. You cannot make up your mind now to turn from your sin. If this is really so, then you cannot make up your mind to obey God and you may as well make up your mind to go to hell. There is no alternative. At any rate, you say that you cannot become a Christian now. You intend to be converted sometime, but you cannot make up your mind to do so now. Well, God requires it now, and of course, you must yield or suffer the consequences. Do you really say that you cannot now? Then God is very much to blame for asking you to do so now. If, however, the truth is that you can, then the lie is on your side, and it is a most offensive and unjust lie against your Maker. Roman numeral 3. All excuses for sin add insult to injury. 1. An excuse that reflects adversely upon the court or the lawgiver is an aggravation of the original crime. It is always so regarded in all courts. It must be preeminently so between the sinner and his infinite lawgiver and judge. 2. The same is true of any excuse made in self justification. If it is false, it is considered an aggravation or worsening of the crime charged. This is a case that sometimes happens, and whenever it does, it is considered as adding fresh insult and wrong. For a criminal to come and spread out his lie upon the records of the court, to declare what he knows to be false, nothing can prejudice his case so fearfully. On the other hand, when someone before the court appears to be honest and confesses his guilt, the judge, if he has any discretion in the case, puts down his sentence to the lowest point possible. However, if the criminal resorts to avoiding truth, if he evades and lies, then you will see the strong arm of the law come down upon him. The judge comes forth in all the thunders of judicial majesty and terror, and he feels that he may not spare his victim. Why? 
the man has lied before the very court of justice. The man has set himself against all law, and he must be put down, or the law itself is failing. 3. It is truly detestable for the sinner to blame God and then excuse himself for it. This is just the old way of the guilty. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fled and hid themselves when they heard the voice of the Lord approaching. What had they done? The Lord called them out and began to examine them. Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten of the forbidden tree in the center of the garden? Adam trembled but fled to an excuse. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Genesis 3.12 He said that God gave him his tempter. According to his excuse, God had been mainly to blame in the matter. God next turned to the woman. What is it that thou hast done? She too has an excuse. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Genesis 3.13 Oh, this perpetual shifting the blame back upon God. It has been kept up through the long line of Adam's imitators down to this day. For 6,000 years God has been hearing it, and still the world is spared. The vengeance of God has not yet burst forth to smite all his guilty slanderers to hell. Oh, what patience in God! Who has ever abused his patience and insulted him by their excuses more than sinners here today? Remarks 1. No sinner under the light of the gospel lives a single hour in sin without some excuse, either implied or clearly stated, by which he justifies himself. It seems to be a law of man's intelligent nature that when he is accused of wrong, either by his conscience or by any other means, he must either confess or justify himself. The latter is the course taken by all unrepentant sinners. This is the reason why they have so much cause for excuses, and why they find it convenient to have so great a variety. It is remarkable with what ease they move from one excuse to another, as if these refuges of lies might make up in number what they lack in strength. They are aware that not one of all the multitude of excuses is valid in point of truth and right. Yet when confronted on one, they run to another, and when driven from all in succession, they are ready to come back and fight the same ground over again. It is very hard to abandon all excuses and admit the humbling truth that they themselves are all wrong and God is completely right. Therefore, it becomes the great business of a gospel minister to search out and expose the sinner's excuses, to go all around and, if possible, demolish the sinner's refuges of lies and lay his heart open to the rays of truth. 2. Excuses make repentance 
impossible. Excuses are justifications, and justification is the very opposite of confession and repentance. Therefore, to seek after and embrace excuses is to place oneself at the farthest possible point from repentance. Of course, the self-excusing sinner makes it impossible for God to forgive him. He places the deity in such a position toward himself and places himself in such an attitude toward the government of God that his forgiveness would be destructive to the very throne of God. What would heaven and earth say, and hell too, if God were to forgive a sinner while he, by his excuses, is justifying himself and condemning his Maker? 3. Sinners should lay all their excuses at once before God. Surely this is most reasonable. Why not? If a man owed me money who thought he had a reasonable excuse for not paying the debt, he should come to me and let me understand the whole case. Maybe he will convince me that his views are right. Sinner, have you ever done this in regard to God? Have you ever brought up one excuse before the Lord, saying, You require me to be holy, but I can't be. Lord, I have a good excuse for not obeying you. No, sinner, you are not in the habit of doing this. You probably have not done this even once in your life. In fact, you have no particular encouragement to present your excuses before God for you do not yet have one that you believe is good for anything except to answer the purpose of a refuge of lies. Your excuses will not stand the ordeal of your own reason and conscience. How then can you hope they will stand before the searching eye of God? The fact that you never come with your excuses to God shows that you have no confidence in them. 4. What infinite foolishness it is to rest on excuses that you dare not bring before God now. How can you stand before God in the judgment if your excuses are so weak that you cannot seriously think of bringing one of them before God in this world? Sinner, that coming day will be far more searching and dreadful than anything you have yet seen. Observe that great crowd of sinners lined up before the great white throne as far as the eye can see. They come surging up, a countless multitude. Now they stand, and the dreadful trump of God summons them forward to bring forth their excuses for sin. Sinners, any one of you, what have you to say as to why sentence should not be passed on you? Where are all those excuses you were once so free and bold to make? Where are they all? Why don't you make them now? Give heed. God waits. He listens. There is silence in heaven all throughout the congregated crowd for half an hour. Revelation 8.1 there is a dreadful silence that can be felt 
But not a word is said, not a lip moves among the gathered multitude of sinners there. Now the great and dreadful judge arises and lets loose his thunders. See the waves of dire damnation roll over the great crowd of self-condemned sinners. Did you ever see the judge rise from his bench in court to pass the sentence of death on a criminal? Over there, look, the poor man staggers and falls prostrate. There is no longer any strength in him, for death is on him, and his last hope has perished. Sinner, when that sentence from the dreadful throne falls on you, your excuses will be as millstones around your neck as you plunge down the sides of the pit to the lowest hell. 5. Sinners don't need their excuses. God does not ask for even one. He does not at all require you to justify yourself. If you needed them for your salvation, I could sympathize with you and certainly would help you all I could. But you don't need them. Your salvation does not depend on your successful self-vindication. You do not need to rack your brain for excuses. It is better to say that you don't want them and don't deserve them than to have not even one that is worth a straw. It is better to say, I am wicked. God knows that is the truth, and it would be useless for me to try to conceal it. I am wicked, and if I live, it must be on simple mercy. I can remember very well the year I lived on excuses and how long it was before I gave them up. I had never heard a minister preach on the subject. I found, however, by my experience, that my excuses and lies were the obstacles in the way of my conversion. As soon as I let these completely go, I found the gate of mercy wide open. And so, sinner, would you. 6. Sinners should be ashamed of their excuses and repent of them. You might not have always seen this as plainly as you do now. With the light now before you, it would be good for you to beware. See to it that you never make another excuse unless you intend to slander God in the most horrible manner. Nothing can be more grievous abomination in the sight of God than excuses made by a sinner who knows they are utterly false and blasphemous. You should repent of the insult you have already offered to God, and do so now, so that you do not find yourself driven away from the gate of mercy. 7. You acknowledge your obligation and of course are stopped from making excuses. For if you have any good excuse, you are not under obligation. If any one of you has a good excuse for disobeying God, 
you are no longer under obligation to obey. However, since you are obligated to admit your duty, you are also obligated to give up your excuses. 8. Inasmuch as you do and must admit your responsibility, then if you still give excuses, you insult God to His face. You insult Him by accusing Him of infinite tyranny. Now, what good do you intend to make of this sermon? Are you ready to say, I will from now on refrain from all my excuses now and forever, and God will have my whole heart? What do you say? Will you set out to come up with some new excuse? Do you at least say, let me go home first. Don't pressure me to yield to God here on the spot. Let me go home, and then I will. Do you say this? Are you aware how tender this moment is? How critical this passing hour is? Remember that it is not I who urge this claim upon you, but it is God. God Himself commands you to repent today, this hour. You know your duty. You know what true Christianity is. You know what it is to give God your heart. Now, I come to the final question. Will you do it? Will you abandon all your excuses? Will you fall a self-condemned sinner before a God of love and yield to Him yourself, your heart, and your whole being from this moment on and forever? Will you come?